Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels, vehicles, and transport energy. My name is Tammy Klein. I'm your host. I'm founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies, and I'm super pumped to have with me today Felix Leach and Kelly Senecal. Guys, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us, Tammy. (laughs) Thank you, Tammy. So let me tell you a little bit about these guys. So first of all, Kelly Senecal. Kelly is a co-founder and owner of Convergent Science, a computational fluid dynamics, uh, also called CFD, software company headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin, a great town. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a co-founder and director of the Computational Chemistry Consortium, C3, and an associate editor of the journal Transportation Engineering. He's one of the original developers of Converge, an industry-leading CFD solver. Kelly is also a fellow of the Society of Automotive Engineers, a member of the Executive Committee of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, ICE Division, a member of the Board of Advisors for the Central State Sections of the Combustion Institute, and a 2019 recipient of the ASME Internal Combustion Engine Award. He holds a bachelor's degree in physics from Lawrence University and a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Great school. So let me tell you a little bit about Felix. Uh, Felix is an associate professor of engineering science at the University of Oxford, a post held jointly with that of fellow and tutor in engineering science at Keppel College. His research interests are in emissions and efficiency of thermal propulsion systems and air quality. He has had a particular focus on particulate emissions from gasoline direct injection engines and developing a fundamental understanding of NOx emissions from diesel engines. So Felix holds his master's in engineering uh, and DPHIL degrees in engineering science from the University of Oxford and is a chartered engineer and member of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, a fellow of the Higher Education uh, Academy and a member of the Society of Automotive Engineers. Woof! <laughs> your your credentials precede you. Um. <laughs> and for the American listeners, a DPhil is like a PhD. Yeah, and for most of our British listeners as well, it's just Oxford that is very peculiar about not calling it a PhD for some reason. Thanks thanks for catching that. I thought I'd just do the D-P-H-I-L thing. Um, So guys, welcome to the program. I've known you you both uh, for several years now, um, and it's been a pleasure to get to know you both and uh, your work. Um, So today we're going to talk about a book that you both have written that comes out on May 19th called Racing Towards Zero, The Untold Story of Driving Green. So why write a book about this topic? Why now? And what led you guys to do it? Tell us about it. So maybe I'll start off on that one and then I'm sure Felix will will jump in. Um, Yeah, so we actually started writing this, wow, well over a year ago, almost two years ago, would you say, Felix? Yeah, it's about and so two years ago. It's really, yeah, it's really been, um, you know, around this time where, you know, a lot of governments are talking about banning internal combustion engines. Companies are coming out and saying, we're going to go all electric, you know, by such and such a date. And certainly Felix and I, and we talk about this in the book, we are advocates of battery electric vehicles. Uh, we think they definitely hold a firm place in the future transportation solution. And there's definitely a time and a place for them. Uh, but we don't feel like, in the, at least in the near term, maybe to medium term, that they are the silver bullet solution, right? And so if we're really going to decarbonize quickly, which I think is in all of our best interests, uh, we have to take a look at this mix of technologies, right? And that's really one of the core themes of the book. So the timing of the book, uh, I we wish it would have come out even earlier, right? So you know, hopefully it's coming out still this month. Uh, <laughs> we're just finishing some things up. <clears throat> but um, it's really a good time because a lot of these ships are sailing, it feels like, in this direction mm-hmm. of e-mobility. And again, we want that, but we need to keep in mind other technologies as well. So that that was sort of why we wrote the book, or at least why I wrote the book, and why the timing was sort of right for it. So I'll let Felix add 
it has been into. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I agree entirely. I think for me, I was coming out maybe with a slightly different perspective, which is that in the last maybe, say, 10 years, there's been such a huge development of technologies in, in the propulsion space. You know, battery electric vehicles have, you know, advanced so rapidly and, and are now basically a mainstream technology, which even a few years ago they weren't. But also there's been other advances, both in internal combustion engines and also in hydrogen propulsion. And it just seems that there's now so many options, particularly for light duty transportation, that there weren't even two or three years ago. I'm not sure we could have had the same conversation. And so I, I just felt that given this kind of choice that was available, people just seem to be picking one technology or their favorite technology or maybe the one that they're invested in or whatever and saying that this is the best solution. And actually, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that and that the best solution maybe depends on the application, where you are in the world. And so we try and bring together what's a hugely diverse topic to try and discuss the pros and cons of every solution because no solution is a silver bullet. No solution has got, you know, the perfect outcomes for everyone and and the aim as kelly said is we've got to decarbonize quickly and i you know i really passionately believe that and hopefully the book kind of helps drill down about what positive things we can all do to help decarbonize as swiftly as we can so let's get into um sort of more of the the, the technologies um i mean i i do hear you know, what you're saying i do think this is this is really important because i'm covering this from the policy and market impact um, side. And I do see that uh, policymakers really have seized on, you know, the, you know, the electric vehicle as the silver bullet. And there is a, um, you know, as, as, as my, my, as long as I've been in my career, 25 year long career, it's always been in transportation energy about the silver bullet. And it, and it, you know, it seems really difficult to get policymakers out of that and looking at the and looking at the nuances. So um, when we talk about the, the different uh, technologies um, that are out there, especially what you mentioned about improvements in, you know, the ice, can you talk about some of the, you know, where we are today and where we can go um, with the internal combustion engine um, technologies and improvements and such that you wrote about in the book. Felix, why don't you start that one? Sure. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, we're at a bit of a crossroads and, and no technology stands still. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is how 100, 150 years ago, the battery electric vehicle and the internal combustion engine were also in a kind of tussle for supremacy. And really, it was the range of the ICE that meant that it kind of became dominant through most of the 20th century. So I think we, we need to understand that all of these technologies have seen huge numbers of improvements in, in the last, you know, however many years you want to pick, really, certainly up to 100. Um, but in terms of the ICE, you know, I think we talk about a variety of different technologies, um, both of, some of which are more incremental, some of which are more kind of, I, I wouldn't say blue sky because they're running today, but they're certainly a bigger technological step. So incremental things, you know, I'm thinking maybe like water injection or, or technologies like that that will give a few percentage points of efficiency improvement. And then things like opposed piston engines that uh, or gasoline compression ignition that maybe are a bit more of a technological leap. And, and we set ourselves, I think, some challenging targets in the book for what we think the industry can meet relatively swiftly. So I think we say that something like a 60% efficient internal combustion engine is probably um, going to happen relatively soon, provided the investment continues. Um, that seems very ambitious, but I think you know we already have truck engines out there that are more than 50% efficient, targeting 55. So I don't think that 60% is is unreasonable. But I wouldn't want to keep the internal combustion engine on its own. I don't think at all in the book we're advocating pure internal combustion engine vehicles, mm -hmm. but it's really combining it with electrification. We're huge proponents of electrification um, around kind of hybridization. And I think with uh, reasonable levels of electrification, you could take uh, a vehicle to maybe 80% vehicle level efficiency when you incorporate energy recovery and other kind of hybrid system functions. So I wouldn't want to separate these technologies out. I think one of the things I want to sort of say is that actually we're all in this together. It shouldn't be an either or. And you know, for plenty of applications, BEVs are the best solution. But similarly for ICES, and certainly hybridization, I think, can bring around the most rapid decarbonization, simply because, you know, if we're limited in battery capacity in the next five to 10 years, however long it is, you know, you only need a couple of kilowatt hours of batteries in a hybrid to get a really big benefit. 
Whereas a bed batteries are 50, 100, you know, they're getting bigger uh, in terms of size, kilowatt hours, I should say. So I think that's where we are. But I wouldn't want to look at the ice simply on its own. Mm-hmm. Kelly, I don't know if you had further thoughts. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> we should write a book about that. Um, so, yes, yeah, so <laughs> putting a battery, putting a small battery in every car. Right. There, there's no reason why we shouldn't or, or can't do that. Um, and really marrying the best of both worlds. Right. It's not combustion or electrification. It's combustion and electrification, not only uh, on their own in various locations and applications, but together in, in, in the terms of a hybrid. And we talk about this in the book about, all, you know, the, the vast range of hybrids all the way from a micro hybrid all the way up to a plug-in hybrid or an extended range electric vehicle, right? So all of those things have their different <clears throat> pros and cons and can be very useful in different situations. Um, and the other thing we want to touch on as well, and, and we, we talk about this in the book, is carbon neutral or carbon-free fuels, mm-hmm. right? So this idea, you see it a lot uh, on LinkedIn and in the media itself where ISIS is termed a fossil fuel vehicle, right? Um I usually argue back and say, well, in a lot of places in the world, a battery electric vehicle is also a fossil fuel vehicle, yes. right? So um, really it's not the, the internal combustion engine as a machine is brilliant, right? It's, it's, it, that's not the problem. It's the fuel, right? So we talk about this quite a bit in the book as well, and it's not an easy task, right? There's a lot of, it's not the most efficient process. And, and I'm sure you've, I'm sure you know a lot about this, Tammy, but mm-hmm. um, you know, there is potential there. Right. Just like we're trying to make the grid more and more renewable, we can make our fuel more and more renewable as well. So if you, Felix, you talked about an 80 percent efficiency. So if you were to put in um, a lower carbon, no carbon and actually we're even talking net negative uh, fuels uh, these days, you know, if you add in things like carbon capture and storage. Where does that, I mean, if, if we at least start from a low carbon fuel basis, depending on the fuel, what kind of additional efficiency improvement can you get? Can you get 85? Can you get 90? Can you get beyond? Well, so I, I suppose, Tammy, what I'd say is what, what, one of the most controversial statements I think that's in the book is that I write, and I will take full ownership of this, that I think efficiency <laughs> doesn't matter. And I phrase it slightly more nuanced than that in the book, but does efficiency matter? Because if it's zero carbon input, then from a CO2 perspective, efficiency doesn't matter because zero times by anything is zero, right? Right. Um, of course, when you bring factor in cost and stuff, then of course it does begin to matter. But we're moving away from a world where you might just pay for the amount of electricity you use. It's about when, because electricity and energy storage is becoming more important as well. Yes. So I think if I would want to move the discussion away from pure efficiency, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. And the reason I say that is thermodynamically, nothing can ever be 100% efficient. No process is ever 100% efficient. So to sort of end your question with the dot, 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 could we ever get to 100% efficiency? No, we couldn't. But we couldn't do that with a battery. We couldn't do that with an ice. We couldn't do that with a fuel cell. We couldn't do that with any, as far as I'm aware, thermodynamic technology that's possible because there are always going to be some losses. Yeah. So therefore, the focus is on, okay, so efficiency matters, but is it the whole story? And of course, I'm being a little bit controversial by saying efficiency doesn't matter, but we actually run the numbers in the book. And you can get, for a system, vehicle level efficiency. For every technology, we've got numbers in the single digits, because if you've got a BEV that's charged from a coal-fired power station and there are some transmission losses, that's going to be very low efficiency. If you've got a BEV that's charged from you know, I think a, a wind, I'm going to have to remind myself of the numbers, but I think wind turbines are about 50% efficient. Now, of course, the wind is free, so it doesn't really matter that it's 50% efficient. Right. But all of these systems have got efficiency levels associated with them. So is it just about efficiency or is it more about the, the inputs? So if it's wind, it doesn't matter. But if it's a zero carbon fuel, it may not matter as well. Now, it may matter from a cost perspective, but not from a carbon perspective. But then when you get into cost, you get into economic territory. And I, as an engineer, I'm, I'm always very nervous of wanting to comment <laughs> on, on economics. But I think, um, you know, that's the point where incentives, policy, user behavior all come into the picture as well as a pure engineering efficiency. I realize I haven't answered your question at all, but I do think it's important <laughs> that a focus on efficiency isn't the whole story. Yeah, I, I get that. And I also get um, what you're saying about zero zero emission. I mean, I see um, on your LinkedIn feed, uh, Kelly, at least once a week, nah, it's probably more than that. <laughs> 
sometimes probably like two or three times a week, you know, this perpetual correction of it's not a zero emission vehicle. It's not a zero emission vehicle. It's not a zero emission vehicle. And, um, you know, and it is, uh, you got a point. It's not a zero emission vehicle at the end of the day. Um, Yeah, Yeah, so that started, it was actually very interesting. And I I allude to this in the book as well. I think in the first chapter where um, I was giving, back in late 2016, when I was giving my TEDx talk that sort of launched me into this sort of advocacy uh, down this path, uh, you know, if you, if you really drill it down on people and you, and you push them, everybody knows electricity has to come from somewhere. Right. And if yeah. you talk about it, okay, yeah, I get that there's natural gas, there's coal, there's solar, there's wind, but oftentimes people don't go that deep with it. Right. They don't think about it that deeply. And there was a, a married couple in the audience that had recently purchased a Tesla. Um, and they were sold on this zero emissions idea. They didn't think about okay, I charge it. Where does electricity come from? Right. They just didn't think about it. They just knew that they had no tailpipe and therefore Mm -hmm. no emissions. And so, um, zero tailpipe emissions is a better phrase I would say, you know, but even, even that isn't the whole story on the vehicle level. You have, you know, the particulates coming from the tires and the road wear, and and in some cases the brake wear. Um, so even on the vehicle level, it's not just about the tailpipe, but yeah, yeah. I, I apologize for, (laughs) for all of those corrections, but you know, it's my little way of the more I correct it or the more we all correct it, hopefully it will make an impact at some point. Um, because really, as we talk about at length through the book, just uh, uh, legislating on the tailpipe re- really doesn't get us to lower carbon, yeah. right? We have to legislate yeah. on a life cycle basis. And so we talk quite a bit about life cycle analysis in the book and how that's a very complicated topic and how you can kind of get whatever answer you want, if that's your goal. I call uh, it moving the coconuts, you know, yeah. move the coconuts to get the answer that you want. Exactly. Where's exactly. the ball? You know, that price yeah. is right game. <laughs> exactly. So of course we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we try not to at least. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so we, we really advocate for life cycle based legislation. Um, but there's some work to be done, right. And trying to work out a lot of these assumptions. So you can't just get any answer you want. Let's try to get to the truth. Um, And at that point, at that point, if a Bev wins, Bev wins. If an ICE needs to be, you know, if we shouldn't be driving ICE anymore because of regulations, let's not drive ICE anymore. Let's do it on a fair basis. So I know that was, (laughs) I kind of went on a tangent there, but that's sort of the the impetus of the zero emission vehicle kind of rant that I go on. Yeah, but but it's but it's important and it's definitely um, relevant to the book. My my question to you is: Do you think that that is beginning to resonate, and not just in you know the the immediate community of your peers, but outside, you know, in the electric vehicle community, or to policymakers, or to others, you know, sort of outside of your immediate, you know, your immediate community. I think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done still, but I can give you a funny example and I won't name any names, but there is a certain person on LinkedIn who almost every one of their posts would say zero emission vehicles or something, uh, hashtag zero emission yeah. vehicles. Um, this person doesn't seem to do that anymore. And I don't know if I had an influence on that or not, but I'd like to think that that I did, or at least somebody did, maybe Felix did. Um, <laughs> but so that's just like a little small victory. Um, but you do see, I mean, there there are calls now for uh, committees being formed to to try to get get a better hold on this life cycle analysis idea, right? And if you even read some of the legislation, uh, if you read some of the, the documents, it even says things in there, which I learned from researching this book, that, look, we know that there's more to it than just the tailpipe. And because of that, we're going to start relaxing some of these sort of super credit or zero emission kind of credit ideas. So hopefully in the future, we start to roll this stuff in. So there's hope. There's mm-hmm. hope. But I, my fear is, you know, it's going to take too long to get to that. Right. And so I so that's sort of where I'm at. So I do think there's been we moved the needle a little bit, um, but there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah. Yeah, I think people are learning. You know, mm-hmm. I'm speaking yeah. from a, a British or maybe European perspective. You know, uh, Dieselgate had a profound influence over here. You know, in Europe there was a very, yes. very high penetration of diesel vehicles, and that fell off rapidly. And and um, people said, oh, well, you know, if we get rid of the diesels, we get rid of the pollution. And I I sort of coined this phrase, which I talk about in the book quite a bit, which is pollution's not a helpful word. 
what is pollution? Do you mean NOx? Do you mean particulate exactly. matter? Do you mean CO2? Mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. what do you mean? And I, I was having a conversation with a, a local policymaker recently where, you know, we've had so much focus in, in the UK on NOx. We've got clean air zones and all these things focused on NOx. And they said, well, you know, why aren't our particulates coming down? I said, because you've not made any policy interventions around particulate matter. And, you know, exactly. a lot of diesel vehicles are fitted with DPF, so actually their particulate emissions are very, very low. Uh, sorry, I should say diesel particulate filter. Um, but, you know, this relentless focus on a single pollutant, whether it's CO2 or NOx or whatever, and actually I think we are now beginning to make an impact that people have seen, certainly in Europe, that a focus on NOx hasn't actually changed the whole picture. You know, no. yes, one pollutant has come down, but not everything has. And so I think this kind of life cycle approach is that people are receptive to it. And, and I think even with electric vehicles now, people are sort of focusing on, well, hang on, we know that the electricity doesn't just come from the plug. Where where does it come from upstream? And we're lucky in the UK to have a relatively clean grid. But even then, people are acknowledging you know, microplastics, I find quite a helpful word, because that describes tyre particulate matter mm -hmm. very, very very well um, but you know an electric vehicle's got just as many tires as a, a gasoline vehicle or a diesel vehicle so so you know i think we are making an impact but as kelly says you know i, I worry about the speed and that's why we've got racing in the title of our book you know when we do this is really important and so i hope that by publishing this book now that we can increase these levels of accuracy and, and get more people listening when we talk about life cycle analyses, I mean, it's kind of like which model are we are we really talking about? Are we talking well to tank? Are we now talking cradle to grave? Um, you know, are we talking? And and again, it's like, well, wh which model are we using? Are we using great? You know, for example, which is the the model in the U.S. Are we using, you know, something else? Um, you know, what is the, the preferred approach? Is it now cradle to grave? And do you think that that will be sort of um, expanded? You know, there will be more of an expanded um, analyses that are based on that rather than the traditional well-to-wheel or well-to-tank? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think, you know, well-to-wheel and well-to-tank was fine when the majority of the emissions came from the well. <laughs> Um, but, but you know, today they don't or they won't, um, I should say, with, with electricity. And so we need to look at a bigger picture. You know, in, a, in a BEV that's charged from renewable sources, the majority of the emissions have happened before you purchase the vehicle. Right. Um, so we need to move to these new approaches. So I think cradle to grave or, you know, comprehensive or however you want to describe it is really important. But I think how that happens and how policymakers find ways of doing that is going to be equally important because there's so much scope as you know you were mentioning about the kind of the coconuts earlier for so finding a, a, a exactly a, a way in which all of these um emissions are accounted for fairly you know do we actually mind simply about the emissions in our own country or you know what about import emissions that are associated with say a vehicle crossing a border um, or electricity crossing a border, for example. Um, so I think we need to really think very carefully about that. And we talk about in the book, we look at life cycle analyses that come up with two completely different answers next to each other. And we try and dig down and understand why. And it's about the assumptions that go in about vehicle lifetime, average number of miles driven, what you're charging it from, where you're charging it. Um, you know, does the battery need to be replaced in the BEV? Well, most BEVs at the moment are under 10 years old. But, you know, there's plenty of gasoline and diesel vehicles around that are more than 20 or 30 years old. So, you know, that's not necessarily representative of everything, but all of these things have an impact on your life cycle analysis and, and getting policymakers to make some reasonable assumptions there that are aligned with all of their other uh, policies around CO2 reduction, whether it's power generation or uh, import of goods and services, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I think it really does need to be a big picture. So um, the, the the question that I really have, I mean, you're in the UK, um, Felix, and, you know, the UK had a um, internal combustion engine phase out originally at 2040. Then they moved it up to 2035. Now they've moved it up to 2030. And we're having this discussion about uh, cradle to grave LCA and really laying out each option and really doing the analysis. So countries are not doing that. <laughs> countries are, you know, proposing these policies, you know, in the UK, for example, it's moving up the, um, the phase out uh, date uh, in the United States, you know, and really elsewhere, it is 
the potential to spend billions upon billions of dollars to foster the uptake um, of electric vehicles, both for consumer in, uh, consumer incentives, various assorted, um, and you know billions of dollars of expenditure on you know EV infrastructure, you know which is is fine in in and of itself. But nobody's really laying out, you know, we're we're jumping into the void um, with no information or or limited. And I wonder about your experience about that being in, you know, the the UK. And Kelly, I'll ask for your point of view as well. I mean, it's sure the cart has definitely been put before the horse, as it were. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I, you're, I mean, I completely agree. Way before the horse. Yeah, I, I, you know, you won't be surprised to learn that I don't think the 2030 date is a particularly sensible approach for the UK to take, but that's what the policymakers have decided. And, yeah. you know, but it, it, its impacts are felt almost immediately because why would you invest in a technology that you're not going to be able to sell in nine years' time, eight and a half years' time now? Exactly. Um, so I think, you know, it's already had a huge impact, but I think there will need to be a sort of, a reckoning, for want of a better word, at some point in the future. You know, 10 years is a very long time in politics. The saying in the UK is a week is a long time in politics. 10 years is basically an ice age or something. Um, so, <laughs> no pun intended. Puns intended, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> pun possibly intended, but we'll skip over that. Um, but I think, you know, at some point, consumers will get involved. They won't be able to purchase a vehicle that meets their needs. And that's something that we really drive on in the book is that it's all very well making big policies, but unless those policies are met by technological solutions, and I don't just mean a vehicle, but I mean infrastructure, you know, I think the average distance driven in the UK per day per vehicle is about 20 miles. Well, a BEV could meet that with absolutely no problems today. But people don't buy a vehicle to drive 20 miles a day. People buy a vehicle that they can also drive for three or 400 miles when a relative gets sick and they need to, you know, jump in the car and go overnight right. or, or whatever it may be. And so that flexibility is why people buy a vehicle. It's for that freedom that it gives them. So they're not reliant on public transportation or all of the other alternatives that there are out there. So I think when the consumers uh, are involved, that's when things will I don't know whether they'll change or whether there'll be, a, you know, a, a big kind of push towards, OK, well, we need solutions that meet all of our needs. But I think also, particularly speaking for the UK, there's been this assumption that what will happen is uh, BEVs will simply just take over from internal combustion engines and everything else will kind of look the same. But if we've learned anything from the COVID pandemic is that patterns have changed, transportation patterns have changed. And yeah. you know, a traffic jam of BEVs, of autonomous vehicles, of you name it, it looks exactly the same as a traffic jam of ICE vehicles. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that side of the coin, I think, really needs more work because, you know, traffic jams cost huge amounts of money in terms of destruction yeah. of economic value. And all of these things will also need to change. So in the UK, you know, we advocate for active travel policies, so walking and cycling. Our mm -hmm. distances are a little bit smaller than yours over there in the US. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and we also have a much higher uptake of public transport usage, albeit not during, at the moment during COVID. But, you know, I think all of these things will be important. And this assumption that we'll just swap a bed for an ice vehicle in nine years time and, and no, nothing else will change, I think is really false. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a little insane, to, to be honest with you, because any you know, I, I've really um, in in my career like implemented um, or or designed and helped implement programs. You know, admittedly on the fuel side and to a certain extent the the, the vehicle side, and that's really really hard. Um, it, you know, implementing designing and implementing in and of itself is is very very difficult. Um, but then to have it implement and to operate. I mean, we're just talking, you know, years to to really see that happening, and then to bring uh, the the consumer, you know, into that. It's um, it's really, you know, it's not like buying an iPhone. And I and I just, you know, the iPhone um, comparison that I hear is just like <laughs> it is so irrelevant. You know, it's so yeah. different. You know, to to the mobility and moving people around. So I just think it's like, you know, I hear about this, um, you know, I see it, I research it. And it, to me, it's like we're going down the same road that we went down with diesel um, in Europe. I mean, it was like, let's do diesel, let's dieselize, you know, we're going to reduce CO2. Da, da, da. And then, you know, 
10, 15 years later, oh my God, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there will be, you know? there will be a battery gate at some point. Well, <laughs> sure I do wonder, I do wonder about that, but um, yeah, Kelly, any, any views on, on what Felix was just talking about? Well, I did want to add, I mean, even in the U S so from the U S perspective, um, and this is some work that Felix and I have worked on with some other colleagues and it's not in the book, unfortunately, but it's hopefully going to be in a paper that comes out at some point. Um, we're still fine tuning the process, but it, it, it goes back to the difficulty of life cycle analysis. Yeah. It's very difficult. So we keep refining our methods because we keep finding, oh, we should have done this or we should have done that. Now the, the big picture is going to be pretty much the same. The conclusion is going to be the same, but the, the fine-tuned details will be a little bit different. And that's in the U.S. in at least half of the states, if not quite a few more. And again, it goes back to what assumptions you make. Mm-hmm. You can make assumptions that really favor the BEV. You can make assumptions that don't favor the BEV as much. And really driving a hybrid vehicle, a full hybrid vehicle in the U.S. and most of the states is better from a CO2 standpoint than above. Now, certainly there are states in the U.S. where above is cleaner, right? So um, we're not advocating for, you know, we should be banning everything but hybrids. Again, this just feeds into this eclectic mix, this diversity approach where, you know, for different regions, different solutions make more sense. And if I'm a consumer and I live in Wisconsin, and I do, mm-hmm. and I am, um, what vehicle, what's my, what choice can I make to help the environment with my next car? It's going to be buying a hybrid. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, um, yeah. if I live in, you know, Washington state, probably above, yeah. right? So it just depends on where you live. So, um, you know, really this idea of getting past the silver bullet, you know, idea and just embracing that, look, we need to kind of keep improving all these things. We don't have to pick one or the other. Um, we should be improving all of them. And if, and if there is a battery gate at some point in the future, what we don't want to do is look back and say, hmm, that ice technology we froze that back in 2021. We should have kept improving that because now we could have had something even more efficient and cleaner that we can fall back on. Um, we run the risk of not doing that. So it's very important to kind of it, kind of take this eclectic approach um, and and kind of push all the technologies forward. Yeah, I agree. So I'm I wanted to ask you, um, especially um, because your clients you know, are the, with, within Converge is, you know, it's the auto industry. So I'm wondering what their reaction is to all this, because if you look at their um, SEC filings, for example, which I do <laughs> on a regular basis, um, and you listen to investor calls and you read annual reports and, and regular filings, you know, a lot of the investment um, is, um not going into both in manufacturing and in R&D is not going into the internal combustion engine. A lot, if not most, is going into um, the electric vehicle side, especially BEV, and maybe to a lesser extent, you know, for, for, some, auto, for some automakers, um, you know, fuel cell electric vehicles. And I want to ask you about hydrogen in a minute. Um, but, you know, it's, I look at the, those reports and I think, first of all, it's good public relations. Um, my second first thought, my second thought is, you know, oh my God, some of these companies are so dependent for their revenue, you know, 75 and 80%, you know, on, you know, pickups um, and SUVs that really fully are internal combustion engines. So my second, second thought is, is, oh, please. Um, and my third one, third thought is, you know, this is really scary because what if that does happen? What if consumers, you know, really don't take to the the technology um, the way that governments really want them to, especially here, you know, in the U.S. and, and also in Europe? I mean, we saw the, the yellow vest movement in France. I don't think that's isolated, um, you know, when, when options are kind of taken away. I think consumers will speak. Um, so what's the reaction from, from colleagues and clients, you know, in the auto industry um, to this? Because again, you know, just, it just seems really dangerous to really divert so much of that R&D away from the ICE. I mean, it really should be parallel tracking, but I don't see that in the reports and filings that I see. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I have to be a little bit careful, a little careful here talking about my clients, but um, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you some perspective here. So, um, so what you said is, is correct. A lot of money has been shifted from, you know, combustion research to electrification. Um, But what we found, and maybe fortunately for us, we are a software company, right? So all of our design work and what people use our tools for is all virtualization, right? So they, they are virtually or on the computer, they're designing a new engine or a new, you know, electric motor or trying to reduce thermal runaway and things like that. Um, a lot of the money that has been kind of switched from internal combustion to electrification, a lot of that is coming from experimentation, right? So a lot, a lot of the big cost in an R&D program is actually like building the engine and doing like the hardware and like the actual physical engine work. Whereas... Um, I don't want to say we're cheap, but uh, software, uh, you know, doing this through the computer is a cheaper way to do it. It's like less expensive way to do it. Right. So some of the companies are actually ramping up what they're doing in combustion from a software standpoint. They're just reducing their overall programs. Right. Um, and I will say, you know, I, and I don't know um, what everybody's thinking in these companies, but I will say that, you know, there's certainly they're still certainly still doing combustion research. I mean, yes, it's, it's the, 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 the amount of it has gone down for sure. Um, but it's interesting because of a lot of our clients who were doing internal combustion research are now coming to us and saying, please make your software, you know, good and accurate and fast for e-mobility applications, because we're now being asked to do battery cooling simulations. And we love your, we love your tool. We want to keep using it. And so over the last few years, we've really ramped up our offerings in the e-mobility space so we're trying to kind of play wherever, wherever we mm-hmm. need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I would say, yes, there's definitely a shift in, 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 in research dollars. And that's, that's really what scares me because I think we're missing opportunities here to keep improving um, the combustion technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't see, you know, there's, there's people like your, yourselves and others in, um, in combustion that are really, um, you know, sort of forceful on the topic of, um, you know, that we need to have, you know, all options on the table, um, you know, so on and, and so forth. Um, but it, the auto industry itself is pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see them coming forward and going, hey, we're going to do this. Now, yes, we want to have electric vehicle offerings by, you know, uh, 2030, 2035, we want to have the majority of our offerings, you know, we want to have for every internal combustion engine vehicle we manufacture, we're going to offer a BEV uh, option uh, as well for the customers who really want those. You know, you don't really hear them talking about that. And I think it's really, really interesting. It's like radio silence. (laughs) Yeah, the one (laughs) company where, where I would say you do hear that somewhat from is Toyota. Toyota, yes. Toyota absolutely. seems to be, seems and maybe to be Mazda, fairly, and, and Mazda as well. True, true. Yeah. So the Japanese companies tend to be more vocal about this. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it's it's weird, right? Because from a marketing standpoint, going all electric is great. It's great for PR. But like as you alluded to before, and getting Will pro- Ferrell in one of your commercials. That getting Will, fun. oh geez, don't get me started on that. <laughs> The whole Norway comparison just doesn't. I, just know, doesn't work. I know. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, but but yeah, the profits come from these large SUVs and and pickup trucks. Which, by the way, a lot of those are going to have battery electric flavors coming in the future too. True. And yeah. what what's interesting about that? I wanted to say crazy. Okay, I'll say crazy. What's crazy about that is it's these large batteries that are the worst in my opinion, and I think Felix agrees, those are the worst option, right? Because look at all that embedded CO2 you're carrying around with you before you've even driven the, driven the vehicle. Yeah. And the bigger the vehicle is, the bigger that battery pack needs to be, especially now if you want to also have range with that vehicle, yeah. right? So it, it's, it's, very, it's very odd to me. Um, but yeah, that's the industry is not, going. It's not, just, yeah. it's not just that, it's also the mass of the vehicle. You know, right. these vehicles are getting heavier and heavier and heavier with these incredibly large battery packs. And that impacts on all sorts of other things like road wear, tire wear, yeah. all of these yeah. things will Not go up with the, with the mass yeah. of yes. the vehicle. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think, you know, we really need to, yeah, just maintain a perspective. But Tammy, your question is really good because it does highlight what I consider to be one of the weak points of our perspective, which is this all costs money, right? And mm-hmm. and so 
if you switch all your investment from ICE to BEV, you know, you're only spending your money on one thing. But what we're advocating is spending money on lots of things. And so, yeah, it's going to cost money. But we think actually for rapid decarbonisation, it's the only option that's available. Yeah, it is interesting, I think, for the auto industry, because for many years, you know, I mean, the auto industry dream in simple, simple terms is manufacture as many vehicles on as few platforms um, as possible with as few fuel options as possible. I mean, that was the whole point of the worldwide fuel charter, you know, really get the fuels down to really, you're not going to harmonize fuels around the world, but you can advocate and you can sort of, uh, sort of clamp down and you can promote uh, fuel quality and all that. And it just seems like it's so kind of funny and ironic is the exact opposite is happening. There will be multi-platforms of multi-types of vehicles with multi-types of engine uh, technology. It almost kind of seems like the auto industry's worst nightmare <laughs> um, because people are going to want to drive a hybrid if they can get one. People are going to want to drive a regular internal combustion engine if they can get one. They're going to want to drive, some are going to want a BEV. You know, some are going to want to plug in, you know, some eventually will want a fuel cell electric vehicle. So it is, um, you know, it's kind of ironic and it's really challenging, I think, for the auto industry. Yeah, and so far we've, sorry, uh, so far we've only really spoken about the US and and Europe. But, you know, the world's much bigger than that. And and, I think it's really important we retain that global perspective because these technologies, yeah, you know, they may not be bought immediately in the rest of the world, but they do kind of get exported, trickle down. We've got a whole section of the book looking at, for example, uh, emissions control in Africa. And countries in Africa typically use age restrictions rather than kind of emissions legislation to inform that. Um, Mm. But, you know, there's nearly a billion people in the world who don't have access to electricity to light their homes. So, you know, this technology can't possibly Mm -hmm. feed down to them yet. Maybe that'll change in time. But, you know, all of those people will be using ICE technologies for their transportation needs, you know, with technology that's 20, 30 years old. And if we freeze that, then that problem's not going away because CO2 and climate change is a problem for us all, regardless of where in the world the CO2 is emitted. What you say is is so true because I've looked at, okay, if we look at the top auto markets, it's really, you know, it's really comes down to, I would say about 20 to 25 countries that really have the capability, um, just like you're talking about, to really implement and to really have um, penetration of battery electric uh, vehicles in their marketplace. That's 20. And there are what, 185 <laughs> countries around the world. Um, so it is what you're saying is is so um, you know is so true. Um, you know we will need to have that option um, a- available um, for um, you know for those countries. That's always squarely in my mind, having done you know a lot of work in, de- in developing countries. You know trying to implement you know fuels programs or fuel efficiency programs or biofuels blending programs. It's enormously, um, enormously challenging when you look at the the the, the fleet um, and just yeah, just the country's overall capability on on many different points to be able to do that. Uh, so that's what I always think about. And some of these these countries, I mean, it's like you know, there's still Euro three vehicles out there on the road, and they're fast growing. And not so, not not so good. So, um, yeah, that's that's squarely in in my mind what you're saying. So, last question I wanted to ask you guys about is um, well, actually, two questions. You've raised the the issue of non-exhaust um, emissions, and um, this is an issue that I've been following a lot. Uh, so, tire wear, particulates coming off the tires. This is an issue that I've really been following for the last four years. And I really, I think it's more prevalent, a more prevalent discussion in Europe. But how concerned are you about um, these kinds of emissions growing in the future? And do you see policymakers looking at that? I mean, not, I don't hear anything about that here in the United mm-hmm. States. When I first started asking people questions about it, they were like, non-exhaust, what? You know? yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, you're talking about heavier vehicles on the road. You're talking about um, heavier tire wear. How concerned about, how concerned about this are you, um, this kind of growing in the future? So, well, so I'm, I'm, oh, 
No, Kelly, you go ahead this time. Okay, I'll be, it'll be short. So I'm I'm very concerned, um, and we and we talk about this quite a bit um, in the book, and we talk about how, you know, and one of the one of the points we make, and again, it's somewhat controversial, although we believe it's true, is that we've effectively solved the criteria pollutants problem. Mm-hmm. Aside from things like cold start, and you know, mm-hmm. there are certain cases where we still there's still work to do. Doesn't mean it's zero. I'll never. I won't say zero. Um, <laughs> um, but it, we so much so that if you look at sort of how the exhaust particulates have reduced over time, and then you look at the growth of the non-exhaust particulates over time, again because of heavier vehicles, more vehicles, and things like that, um, and that's not regulated at all. Right. Like, as you said, so it's a big concern of mine. And I think, again, the battery electric vehicles and people will argue with this, but they are typically heavier than an analogous um, internal combustion engine vehicle. And that will just lead to more to more of this. So um, I'm very concerned and I do think there should be policy in place to limit this. Uh, It's a difficult problem, but why would we care about the exhaust particulates, but not the other particulates? It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, yeah. So, I mean, I. I think that last point is, you know, we talk about this a lot in the book. Do I care what emitted the pollution that I'm breathing? You know, it it doesn't really matter whether it's a car, whether it was its tyre, its tailpipe, whatever. Um, I mean, in in the UK, I'm involved in a couple of projects uh, around uh, non-exhaust emissions. So I think there is some, there's definitely interest in the research community. Less so, I think, yet in policymakers. But I think that's just because the research hasn't been done. It's a really challenging research area, actually. You know, putting some emissions measurement on equipment in a, on a tailpipe is straightforward. Around a tyre is much more challenging. It's easy enough to maybe, you know, weigh the tyres on a vehicle so you can find out how much mass has been lost, but what size, how many, what were those particles made up of? Is it just the kind of the plastic or the rubber from the tyre, or are there other things that you kind of drag up? You know, those are big questions. And then can we treat them the same as a, a particle that's come from inside a combustion engine? You know, those have got kind of adsorbed hydrocarbons and things on them that maybe a microplastic from a tyre wouldn't do. So we know that they're bad. We don't really know why or how they're bad. And so I think there's huge amounts of research that really need to be done in this area. And I think I think people are only just really waking up to this challenge. Yeah, I think I call it the sleeping giant. Yeah. And one more quick point on that, Tammy, if mm-hmm. I may. So it just really speaks to, and this goes back to life cycle analysis as well, as things are changing rapidly, the legislation and the policies really need to keep up with the technology, right? So we've seen that in a couple of places. One where, you know, back in the day, you know, when exhaust particulates were very high, we didn't really care about the tire particulates because they were much smaller than the thing that was really high, right? So that policy was fine. And and when all of the emissions are coming out of the tailpipe, doing something based on the tailpipe, CO2, for example, makes sense because that's where the majority of the CO2 is coming from. But as we bring in these new technologies, the policy and the legislation has to keep up. Right. So there's two really good examples of that. So I think that's that's also a big uh, a big point we try to address in the book. Yeah. So last question. What's your view in a nutshell about the future of hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles? <laughs> They're smiling. Well, yeah. So I think I we start or end our hydrogen chapter by saying we fully admit this is the area where we think there's the most uncertainty. Yeah. Um, I think hydrogen on paper is always a great solution, but it's really struggled to engage with the market for a number of years now. Now, whether that will persist, I don't know, but I think there's going to be a lot of demand for hydrogen in the future and not just from the light duty space, but from heavy duty, perhaps from shipping, although maybe it'll be coupled to some nitrogen and in ammonia form for shipping or or methanol or something like that. I don't know. Um, also for domestic heating, certainly here in the UK, you know, we have a, a natural gas network that um, heats most people's homes. Hydrogen will solve that problem too, I'm told. But, you know, so hydrogen will be in great demand and there's not very much of it. And that which is available today is mostly sourced from fossil sources. Electrolysis right. from renewables is available, but it's very expensive and relatively early stage compared yeah. to sort of steam steam reformation of methane and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think hydrogen will be hugely in demand, but I wonder whether the light duty space BEVs are probably more, fill the gap that hydrogen would otherwise fill. Maybe there'll be some niche applications. I certainly think for maybe some fleet users like long distance travel, maybe hydrogen will come in, but that's probably more in the Long-haul heavy duty trucking. space. 
Long haul trucking, yeah, certainly in the UK, we've got a big long haul coach network, I guess a bit analogous to your Greyhounds in the US. Mm-hmm. That probably won't be batteries anytime soon. So, you know, I think that's probably where I see hydrogen. But I fully admit that there's a huge amount of uncertainty there. And yeah. we've got to sort out how we get the hydrogen cost effectively. Yeah. I think we summarized it very well in the in the title of that chapter, A New yeah. Hope or New Hype. <laughs> you do have the best chapter, chapter titles. My favorite, I think, is Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I agree because I, I think what I think of practically is... Um, if countries, especially those, the big, the big vehicle, auto uh, vehicle markets, if they are spending billions uh, to put into place the electric vehicle infrastructure and to provide the incentives to sort of bring consumers along, you know, just the infrastructure in, in and of itself, I find it hard that we're going to then graft another infrastructure on top of that. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, will we have the financial wherewithal or interest uh, to do that, especially as electricity does tend to get greener adoption, you know, does continue. The infrastructure is there. We've already spent billions and billions of dollars. I just, I find that hard to believe, but just as you say, I think there's so many gaps there. We just don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Exactly. Stay tuned. Exactly. All right. And that's the show. Uh, Thanks for listening. I want to thank Felix and Kelly so much for being on the show today. Uh, Thank you for your time and your wide, the wide ranging uh, conversation uh, on the future of sustainable transportation uh, energy. Remember the book is coming out soon. It is called racing towards zero, the untold story of driving green. Look for it, search for it on the SAE.org website. And if you're looking for more information, analysis, these podcasts, uh, sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. Go to my website, transportenergystrategies.com, sign up and rate this podcast to keep it visible so that it can benefit others. Thanks again for listening.